Hey, question. What? Should we do another Moody Blues album? everybody. Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we theoretically discuss all our favorite albums song by song, but in reality is just a Moody Blues podcast in a very flimsy disguise. <laughs> Roll call. Phil Maddox. Rich Bennell. John McFerrin. And Amanda Rogers. All right. Well, it's Moody Blues time again, so Woo! no official host Woo! this week. Anarchy. Total anarchy. So, John picked this week's album. So, John, what did you pick and why? I picked A Question of Balance, the Moody Blues album from 1970. So, why did I pick it? Well, so in the nearly 100 officially numbered episodes that Discord and Rhyme has released thus far, not to mention the non-numbered content we have collectively produced, a handful of patterns has emerged in terms of the kinds of albums we like to cover. The first and most obvious of these is Anything by the Moody Blues. This episode marks the fourth time on the main feed where we have covered an album by the band that in many ways brought us together. And this doesn't even count the time on the bonus feed where Amanda and Phil discussed the band's late 80s and early 90s albums. Or the time I joined Amanda and Phil on the bonus feed to discuss the two Moody Bluegrass compilations. Those are real, and you should listen. Yes, those were fun. Patreon.com slash Discord pod. But another kind of album we like to discuss is albums that deviate from the primary idea of what people think of with a given band, but that are nonetheless worthy inclusions to the band's discography. Nowadays, 50 years removed from the band's prime period, a question of balance largely just sounds like an early Moody Blues album. But at the time, it sounded very different from what fans of the band had grown accustomed to. And when listening to the band's albums in chronological order, the contrast between this album and what came before it is still startling. Add in that I personally rate this one very highly in the band's discography, and it was only a matter of time before we talked about this one. So we've obviously covered the Moody Blues many times in the past. You can hear many different versions of how we got into the Moody Blues, but... uh, John, what's your personal history with this specific album? So I got heavily into the Moody Blues during my junior year of high school in late 1996 and early 1997. But before I got into the band as a whole, I became obsessed with the song Question in early 1996. After discovering it on one of the many tapes that a high school friend had of music that he had taped off the radio. Hmm. When I fell in love with the band through the Legend of a Band compilation which had a very different version of Question Closing It Out, I decided that I needed to buy some of their proper albums. And the ones I started with were Days of Future Past, A Question of Balance, and Every Good Boy Deserves Favor, the last two of which my parents had on LP. Aside from Question, which had already firmly established itself as my favorite song from the band, I actually didn't like the album much at all. 
And the main reason was that it didn't really sound like the Moody Blues as I had become accustomed to them. In contrast, I was immediately drawn to Every Good Boy Deserves Favor, which showed the band jumping out of its skin to make the most quintessentially Moody Blues album it could possibly make, for better and often for worse. By the end of high school, however, the album's deviations from the band's quintessential approach no longer sounded to me like a defect. They sounded like variety and innovation. And in some ways, this was the very first hint that my tastes had the soft spot for messiness and lack of unity that has characterized so much of my overall listening preferences since then. What's your history, Amanda? I actually don't remember at what point in my Moody Blues journey I first picked up A Question of Ballads. I've mentioned before, I used to buy their CDs one at a time. If I had a little extra money, I'd go down to Sam Goody and just see what they had in stock that I didn't already own. And it was always really exciting when I found something new. I do remember that I liked this one right away. Uh, But in the many, many years since then, uh, Question of Balance has gradually swapped places with Seventh Sojourn in my theoretical Moody's rankings. I mean, Seventh Sojourn rose and A Question of Balance fell. And this one now, it honestly, it falls toward the bottom of my hypothetical rankings of the Classic 7 period, even though the songs on it are mostly really great, but I'll have more on that as we go along. All right. How about you, Rich? Uh, Well, my history with this one is more or less the same as all of their other albums. This part of the show is kind of redundant for me. This is one of the ones that I bought myself as opposed to one of the ones that my parents had growing up. And uh, I will say that I used to rank it fairly low among their albums, but listening to it closely and repeatedly for this episode has definitely unearthed some diamonds in the rough. But that's about it for me. Well, as for me, like most of their albums, my parents had it on vinyl. And I guess I was always interested in this one because, as a kid because, I mean, this was the one with Mr. Clean on the front cover. <laughs> yeah. was always my interpretation. Oh, right. But anyway, as a kid, my favorite was On the Threshold of a Dream. And I would put this album on and I really loved Question. But for some reason, I never really played the rest of it. I guess something about How Is It We Are Here turned me off, mm. which is also, you know, not the first time that's happened with an album I later came to love, because the same thing happened to me with Jethro Tull's Aqualong. I would play the title track and then turn it off when Cross-Eyed Mary started. But anyway, I eventually started listening to the whole album, and I thought it was a great album, and I still think it's a great album. So, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about this band called the Moody Blues? Specifically about a question of balance and the era surrounding it. Oh, if you want to. I want to tell you something You might like to know There's gonna be a happening Do you know? Do you know? Listen all you people So as mentioned before, this episode marks the fourth time we have covered the Moody Blues. And this also marks the third time that I myself have provided a history segment for the band. You're a Moody Blues historian. (laughs) I am. For additional history of the band during its prime period, please listen to episode two on On the Threshold of a Dream, episode 28 on To Our Children's Children's Children, or episode 62 on Seventh Sojourn. And for various references to the Moody Blues, listen to every episode of this podcast. (laughs) For our purposes here... A Question of Balance marked the fifth studio album produced by the following lineup. Justin Hayward, guitars and vocals. John Lodge, bass and vocals. 
Ray Thomas, flute and vocals. Mike Pinder, keyboards, primarily Mellotron, and vocals. And Graham Edge, percussion, occasional vocals, and poetry. To help explain the circumstances behind the creation of A Question of Balance, I present a listening comparison that should be illustrative. First, the following is a clip from the track Gypsy, which begins side two of the 1969 album To Our Children's Children's Children. Uh, this is just a ripoff of the Magic City by Helium. There you go. <laughs> a gypsy of a strange and distant time, traveling in panic all directions blind, taking with the warmth of a burning sun, freezing at the emptiness of where he come from. Second, the following is a clip of Gypsy from the live album Caught Live Plus Five, recorded a month after the release of To Our Children's Children's Children. enjoy this live version of Gypsy, but there is no question that it is an extremely rough translation of the original. Every layer of the arrangement differs significantly from the studio version. And while part of this was from a commitment to producing a live sound that went beyond simply mimicking the originals, a lot of this came from an ever-increasing gap between the tools available to them in studio recording and the tools available to them in live performance. It is also worth noting that Gypsy was the only track the band initially performed from To Our Children's Children's Children. By 1973, the technology the band used in live performance had improved enough that they felt comfortable bringing much of the material from that album to the stage, but before then it was a non-starter. A quote from the band's producer, Tony Clark, is illuminating in this regard. Quote, A few of them upon playback and mix, would say, how are we going to do that on stage? And I would say, that's your problem. That didn't matter to me. 
Maybe it should have. <laughs> As the band entered 1970 and began considering ideas for a new album, they collectively agreed that while they could go the route of the Beatles and become a studio-only band, they far preferred to simplify their instrumentation and to keep overdubs to a minimum. Among many other things, the finished album satisfied the necessary requirement of providing material the band could play live. The band's performance at the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival included four of the ten tracks from this album, and others would slip in and out of band and solo set lists through the years. Thematically, the band found itself in a contemplative state, largely spurred by their frequent touring across the United States. They found in the America of the late 60s and early 70s a nation that projected tremendous strength to the world but had deep conflicts in every significant aspect of society and culture. And the band, in turn, found itself fascinated by how these conflicts mirrored similar conflicts in the rest of the world and even within themselves as individuals. As the band recorded, assembled, and sequenced the material, they found they had created, in a loose sense, an album that, on the first side, raised questions that mattered to them, and on the second side, made tentative initial steps towards trying to answer them as best as they could. The album clearly resonated. It reached number one in the UK, but it also peaked at number two on the US-based Billboard 200, by far their best performance on that chart to that point. And this showed that the band could make the necessary changes to thrive going forward. Okay, before we get started on yet another Moody Blues album, my favorite Setzer Friedberg film, <laughs> uh, and never fear, there are still plenty more for us to cover in the future. We'd like to say thank you to our newest Patreon subscribers, Cat, Keith, and two guys named Peter. How is it we are here? It's because of all our generous supporters at patreon.com slash discordpod who keep us going ad-free. Even $1 a month will keep us ahead in the race. If Patreon is not your thing, you can support us by buying the albums we talk about, or anything else your heart desires, through the Amazon affiliate links on our website, discordpod.com. We get a small commission from anything you might happen to pick up on that visit, at no additional cost to you. That website is also where you can find complete show notes for all of our episodes, including extra information, corrections for the rare occasions we get something wrong, and links to all the Spotify playlists we've made for you. One quick housekeeping note, just in case you missed the last Weird Al episode. We're putting the compilation series on hiatus for a few months, mainly because our upcoming 100th episode extravaganza is not going to produce itself. But you're going to love it. We don't want you living on a knife edge. So one of these days, probably around the end of August, we will return to our old accustomed ways with a fabulous new compilation series that you are going to love. And in the meantime, our regular album-focused episodes will continue as usual. And now... It's time to start on A Question of Balance, and those of you who didn't already know where our Q&A theme music came from are about to find out. All right, well, let's start with track one, Question. I'd just like to imagine... 15 year old me hearing this song for the first time and like it's like me like traveling through the stargate or something just like my mind being expanded like ooh, what's this why do we never get an answer 
long clip but the song has a lot going on this is widely considered to be one of the moody blues very best songs and i think a lot of people besides john would name it as their favorite i can't argue with that it was released as a single in april 1970 a few months in advance of the album and it hit number 21 on the billboard chart and number two in the uk their highest charting uk single aside from go now which was their only number one because Question just couldn't quite beat out Back Home by the England World Cup squad. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. New Order's only number one in the UK was also a World Cup song. They love their World Cup themes there. You know what? Back Home was the one that started it all, I found out. That oh, wow. was the first time there was a football song on the charts and England said, you know what? This is what we want. The intro to question is so fantastic. I love a good forceful acoustic guitar, and this is one of the best examples of that that I can think of. In fact, it's so forceful and successful that Hart more or less borrowed it for Crazy On You. love that song it's so good and for once that is not just wishful thinking on my part i actually didn't notice it until i saw an interview with ann wilson one time where she said that question was the inspiration for that guitar part oh ann wilson's full name is ann wilson who inducted the moody blues into the hall of fame yeah that's her full legal name we should say uh heart's imitation does sound a little bit bare compared to the source material though because justin hayward is playing a 12 string acoustic guitar here which makes it sound enormous, and it adds a lot more of a low end for that beautifully full chord. There aren't any electric guitars here in the song at all. He kept the whole thing this huge and propulsive with just that acoustic 12-string. But Hayward isn't doing that all on his own. Good old Mike Pinder comes in with the Mellotron pretty early on, and after the initial higher-pitched chords, he really leans on that lower end, making the wild, growly noise that balances out the wordless falsetto vocals that form the next part of the hook. And just a side note, I always assumed that low, growly sound was the Mellotron somehow, but I just recently learned that Pinder had got himself a Moog around this time, and now I wonder if it's that. It seems more likely. 
And then here comes John Lodge, fantastic bass player that he is, with yet another hook. There's like a half a dozen hooks in this song. And I love it when the bass gets to be front and center with one of the most memorable parts of a song, when the bass line and the riff are one and the same. The lyrics in this first part are good, but semi-generic social commentary about war. It was, you know, it was Vietnam time and they'd been spending a lot of time in the United States. And so they were thinking about this a lot. And, you know, it's not the most original theme in the world, but I do like these lyrics a lot. I think they're well done. But then there's a major change. I've mentioned before how several Moody Blues songs are what I call Hayward specials, where the second verse is just the first verse again with one word changed. And in other contexts, I've talked about McCartney specials, where Paul McCartney took a few song fragments and taped them together into a beautiful Frankenstein's monster. Well, this is Justin Hayward writing a McCartney special. He shifts very abruptly into a lower gear, and suddenly it's an entirely different, absolutely gorgeous and mysterious love song. The intensity builds up pretty slowly until we get to maybe my favorite lyrics Hayward ever wrote and one of his most beautiful vocal performances. But in the gray of the morning, my mind becomes confused between the dead and the sleeping and the road that I must choose. I'm looking for someone to change my life. I'm looking for a miracle in my life. And if you does that thing that happens when he goes all out where it breaks upward at the end of each line. I absolutely love it. I also talked about that in the Seventh Sojourn episode in The Land of Make-Believe, which is a Hayward special and a McCartney special all in one. And then after that slow part, we get a reprise of part one. I mean, this is, Question is a song that doesn't really make any sense at all, and yet it is incredible. Now, there are a few different versions of the song out there, and I came at it completely backwards. As I've mentioned before, the first collection of Moody Blues songs I ever heard was their greatest hits from 1989 that was later repackaged as Legend of a Band. And for that one, as John mentioned, they re-recorded it entirely, and it sounds different. Get an answer when we're knocking at the door. 
with a thousand million questions about hate and death and war. Cause when we stop and look around us, there is nothing that we need in a world of persecution that is burning in its greed. think this version is great but I, <laughs> oh i like it sure i make I fun of it fine. but i still like it i i might be somewhat in the minority and it might also just be because that this was the one that i knew first uh this is played by the london symphony orchestra it was arranged by ann dudley who did orchestral arrangements for like everybody you can think of from paul mccartney to share plus a million tv and film scores plus founding the band art of noise it was produced by trevor horn Oh, yeah. She's just all around awesome and should be very famous. Yeah, on any, on pretty much any given Trevor Horn production, she is primarily responsible for like the arrangements and the string arrangements and stuff, which if you've heard any Trevor Horn thing, you know that there are some complex arrangements going on there. Yeah, she's pretty amazing. So, yeah, that is I, I, I love how she arranged this where I feel like they got together and said, OK, how can we make this as enormous as possible without quite tipping over into outright bad taste? And it walks that line really well. Now, at the time I heard this re-recording, I had no idea that it was new. I thought that was just how the song goes. So then when I heard the second batch of Moody Blues songs that I ever heard, which was their first best of collection, this is the Moody Blues, I was expecting that same version. And again, I was very, very, very surprised. This is the version I generally heard on the radio. Yeah, instead of a giant orchestra and choir popping up out of nowhere, there's nothing at all except that 12-string guitar and some percussion to give it that great galloping rhythm. Uh, This is the version that was released as a single. The Mellotron overdubs came later. And I'll be honest, this, this mix is the one that I like the best. After that enormous orchestral re-recording and this bare-bones acoustic guitar version, when I finally heard the actual album recording with the Mellotron overdubs, it, it just sounded kind of anemic and wimpy to me. So I guess with me in question, is all or nothing. But I will take it in any form. When I saw the Days of Future Past tour in 2017, this was in the encore And during that middle part, Hayward said something like, help me out with this part. And I I tell you what, I have never been happier in my life than I was in that moment singing. I'm looking for a miracle in my life, along with an auditorium full of insane Moody Blues fans, because those are my people. You're here. Now, given that this is one of the Moody Blues most popular songs, there are a few covers of it, including a very weird one by Elton John for a sound alike radio hits LP in 1970. 
But the only one I really feel is worth highlighting is this one by Glenn Campbell. show in 1983 and this appears to be taken off of somebody's VHS recording so the sound quality isn't great but the arrangement is just wonderful putting that wordless vocal line on a fiddle was an inspired choice and I think Campbell sounds fantastic singing it I highly recommend listening to the whole thing on YouTube you're gonna love it all right what do you think of question rich oh I love this song it it, the version I've always been familiar with is actually the one from This is the Moody Blues without the Mellotron overdub is because that's the compilation my parents had. And it actually opens the comp. But I've also always kind of been weirded out by the structure of this song. Like, it's not merely that it has a slow part at all. It's that the slow part is right in the middle and goes on for so long. And <laughs> I actually have a comparison that I think you're going to like, Amanda. Well, so the fantasy author Scott Lynch has a novel in his Gentleman Bastard series oh, called Red Seas Under Red Skies. Yeah, you do. And the beginning and end of the novel is like this intricate heist set at a casino in an island city. But then at one point, about halfway in, like the main characters just like abruptly set sail on like this swashbuckling adventure on the high seas. And it's it's very, mm-hmm. very entertaining. Both parts are great. But the swashbuckling part lasts for 300 pages and is just like extremely yeah. tonally jarring compared to what, what around it it's oceans 11 with pirates of the caribbean shoved into the middle of it basically yeah and someone on a forum i read called it a turbukin and that's kind of how i feel (laughs) about question which is more of a (laughs) tersongin like the fast parts and slow parts of question are both great great songs uh, among hayward's best in both cases it's just so strange to me for the ballad to be like completely embedded in the rocker and for it to go on for so long like it's not a deal breaker but one of the things about the moody's as like you know art rock or prog or whatever you want to call this uh, is that when they experiment with structure like this it often comes off as kind of like fragmented and airsats like they had big ideas but weren't really able to piece them together into something that sounds organic uh, I, I remember saying a similar thing about like the have you heard suite back way back in our second episode on on the threshold of a dream and uh, this is a far superior song like in fact for, for everything that i just said this still might be their best song it's either this or the story in your eyes for uh, as far as i'm concerned uh, but nonetheless mm. like my broader feelings on it kind of echo my feelings on that suite it's it's great but it's just like I've always just been kind of weirded out by the construction of it. Well, I've always thought the construction was kind of interesting just because 
I love the hard rocking, hard rocking and a lot of quotation marks. This is the Moody Blues we're talking about <laughs> uh, part at the beginning, but there's really nowhere it can go. It doesn't feel like there's anywhere organic that that could actually go. It feels like a fragment. And I think it was an incredibly inspired idea to basically put a whole different song in the middle of it and just let it sort of serve as an intro and outro. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I also think it's just interesting. I mean, Question is such an obviously great song that it almost creates a problem for the rest of the album, because I like this album. There's lots of very good songs on it. But this, like, obviously towers over the whole thing. Yeah. I'd be hard-pressed to find someone who doesn't cite this as the best song on the album. And I really think it. one of the reasons it kind of took me a long time to get into this album when I was a kid was that it would go on to the next song, and I would be like, well, this obviously isn't as good as Question. Because, you know, the songs generally aren't. But I do agree that the upbeat part doesn't really stand on its own. And I think that like part of my like whole spiel on it just there was left was like left over from when I was a teenager and like the ballad would show up and I would just think, when are we going to get back to the fireworks factory? I, I thought that as a kid, too. But now I look back at it and I think, well, there's a reason it's that way, because there's nowhere else for the rockin' part to go. And they did probably the smartest yeah. thing with it they could have possibly done. Yeah, it builds up a lot of drama for when it returns at the end. Yeah, that actually was Hayward's reasoning. He wrote that rocking part and then was like, huh, I don't know where to go with this next. And then thought, hey, I have this other song I've been working on that's half the tempo. I wonder if I could just slap that in there. And it worked. What do you think of this one, John? I mean, it's my favorite Moody Blues song. It has been pretty much since the beginning. Um, Matt hit on most of the reasons that it is. I don't need to go into that. But I do want to talk a little bit about the structure. Because the, the structure is not normal for a rock song. Like, even in, in a McCartney special, he doesn't generally go back to his original idea. He's just mm -hmm. kind of wander along a garden path. Yeah. He's pasted all these different things together. But this structure is a very, very old structure. There's actually a, a technical name for the, the broad form that Hayward's using here. It's called ternary form. Oh. Yeah. It's, it's basically a, a large-scale ABA form. And the thing is... It, that isn't used in rock music, but it's used in tons of stuff that comes before it. Yeah. It started popping up in Baroque music. Um, it made its way through the classical era and even into the 20th century, like a song like Winter Wonderland. That's mm -hmm. a ternary form song where you basically have a starting thing, you go somewhere totally different, and you come back. And it's a little brisker, a little tighter, but it's the same idea. And something that I think about this song of why it feels so classic is because it's tapping into this older repository of, of form. It feels like it's been around longer. Like even if you're not consciously feeling that, it doesn't feel like a song from 1970. It, it feels like it's tapping into a much older tradition. And I, I think that's part of why it ends up resonating and, and just staying so so heavily um, with people who hear it, who who become fans of the band. It doesn't feel dated at all. No, it doesn't. It, it feels like utterly timeless in a way, like almost sounds more timeless than anything else from these seven albums. And again, I think part of it is because it's just kind of standing off in this own mix of of what they did on the micro level, but in terms of the the broader macro level of being structured with older mechanisms. So yeah, I I love this song, but I think it's it's one that also like holds up really well the closer that you inspect it. Like there's always little things to be able to pick out of it. 
and mm-hmm. I'll probably be finding little things for the rest of my life. And I love songs like that. One bit of trivia I do want to add is, while this isn't quite my favorite Moody Blues song, the the one that is my favorite Moody Blues song, Candle of Life, was the B-side of the single. It was. Oh, really? Yeah. It's a good single release. They didn't do very many B-sides. Basically, they would just slap other random songs on the B-side. I think A Simple Game is about it from their classic era. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the second track on this album. How is it? Open parentheses. We are here. Closed parentheses. How is it? We are here on this path we walk in this world of pointless fear filled with empty talk descending from the age the scientists please so think will they save us in the end we're trembling on the brink men's mighty fine machines digging in the ground Stealing rare minerals where they can be found Concrete caves with iron doors bury it again While a starving frightened world fills the sea with grain Love is like a fire burning inside Love is so much higher can be denied She sends us a glory Pinder wasn't exactly a prolific songwriter. He didn't write a ton of songs for the Moody Blues, and of all the members of the band, he had the least interesting solo career, probably. But the songs he did write were always interesting. And how is it, open parentheses, we are here, close parentheses, is no exception. It's the kind of song that not only can I not imagine coming from any other member of the Moody Blues, I'd be hard-pressed to think of it coming from any other songwriter, period. This song has this weirdly otherworldly aura to it, like many of the best Mike Pinder songs do. And it has some really, truly memorable Mellotron parts. The song has a great arrangement, too. There's all these little subtle drum fills that sound great, and I love the way the guitar solo is super distorted and played against this kind of really dark, claustrophobic-sounding backing music. And somehow, as cool as this song is... I still think it's one of the more minor tracks on this album, which is really just a testament to how good the Moody Blues were. Lyrically, this one's about the environment, namely about how humans are destroying it. It's always kind of reminded me of John Prine's Paradise, with the lyrics about mining machines stripping everything out of the ground. Prine's lyrics are better, as Prine's lyrics tend to be better than pretty much everybody's, but these are good too, despite there being a couple of weird moments. There's a line about how scientist priests say that we're descended from the apes, which always kind of gives me a bit of an ICP Miracles vibe. Water, fire, air, and dirt. F***ing magnets. How do they work? And I don't want to talk to a scientist. Y'all motherfuckers lying and getting me pissed. And then there's a kind of only about half correct reference to Acts 27 when they're talking about filling the seas (laughs) with grain, which kind of seems like it's coming out of nowhere. But even when the lyrics are a bit iffy, 
Pinder's voice really sells the hell out of the material and it all just works anyway. So when I was first uh, becoming acquainted with this album, um, a good half of it, five tracks on here probably would have fallen in my top uh, in my bottom 10 for the band. And my thing was like, this is all ugly. Like I expect uh, a, a certain level of baseline beauty and and majesty for the band, et cetera, et cetera. And it really put me off of this album for a good couple of years. Um, but when I came around to, you know, starting to say like, hey, it's OK if the Moody Blues don't sound exactly like the very, very narrow conception that you have of them. Like this song and and all the other ones that I I strongly disliked initially, like just went up and up. And something that that's really uh, become more and more and more apparent to me about this album over the years is one after another. These songs tend to have really interesting midsections. Hmm. I mean, as, uh, aside from all the the interesting textural stuff that they're doing in, in the songs on the whole, like there's a lot of really interesting kind of dark, jagged, angular things happening in some of the midsections, but also some tracks with just some, some moments of, and passages of just incredible uplifting beauty. And the thing that also strikes me about these passages is that, you know, even as they're like stretching and, and doing different things, they also keep those passages pretty concise. Like they understand that like, you know, even if we want to like change the textures, we're still not quite a prog rock band. We're a pop band that can have some artsy and experimental leanings, but we're still going to stay within a pretty tight uh, window. And I really, really respect that the more that I listen to this album. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this song falls into that category very, very much. Like the the distorted guitar solo in the middle, it's really, really spooky. And like, and, and Hayward wouldn't touch on this sort of thing really outside of this album. I really, really dig this song. In our most recent Q&A episode, I said this was my least favorite song on A Question of Balance, but I don't know why I said that. Is With with apologies to the listener who asked that question, I didn't put a whole lot of thought into it because as I said then, I just, I just really don't like ranking songs. So the truth is, this is definitely not my most favorite on the album, but I like it quite a lot. In fact, I almost picked this song as the Moody Blues entry for the Patreon episode we did on Mellotron songs because the keyboards in this one are so interesting. But it's a good thing I ended up going with Legend of a Mind because it turns out a lot of the cool noises in this one are coming from a Moog. Yep. And yeah, as I uh, mentioned, you know, Pinder had gotten himself a Moog around this time. And I wonder if part of the reason for that was you know, the reason for the whole sound of this album, which was that the Mellotron was such a pain in the ass live. And I wonder if the Moog was just easier to deal with. Because, I mean, as I've mentioned, like if there was, especially when they were touring in the U.S., this was a problem. If there was any sort of variation in the power supply, the Mellotron would go out of tune because it would affect how fast it pulled the tapes through the tape head. And that gets you a different frequency and then everything's just wrong. Um and now, so now I'm wondering, I didn't actually look this up because it didn't occur to me till just now if they brought the Moog on tour. 
because that kind of seems like it would be more trouble dragging two giant keyboards around. I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to see if I can find out. Um, anyhow, this is a very, very weird sounding song. And I think it's a good illustration of my theory that out of everybody in this very dorky band, Mike Pender was the one who came the closest to actually being really cool. He gave an interview around this time in which he went on at length about his theory that the vibrations of the universe were all out of whack and would lead to the destruction of the world within his lifetime. And he's still alive, so don't rule this out. It could still happen. And how is it we are here is his take on the the balance theme of the album, specifically the balance between the needs of humans and the needs of the planet. This whole thing is extremely pinder, but at the same time, I can't think of another pinder song that really sounds like this. There's, there's a lot about this album that's really unusual for the Moody Blues, if not outright unique, and that this is just entirely unique. All right. What's your take, Rich? I think this one's really amusing because, it, well, like like John said, the first the first side of this album is kind of like a series of questions, and uh, you especially get that on on the first two where it's like really really literal because like Hayward opens the album singing about like how he has a thousand million questions about hate and death and war, and you know I wouldn't call it subtle, but it's like you know John Keats or something compared with Pinder just straight up like grabbing you by the collar and interrogating <laughs> you about all of the problems in the world and the environment, and then and then he gets really horny for mother earth during the chorus which is just kind of weird yep yeah. pinder gets weirdly <laughs> horny a lot mike pinder is he such does. a pimp pimp for the earth pimp for the cosmos i don't think this one was quite written by his mustache but close. He's, he's yearning and feels a dark desire i do like this song though it's a, it's a great track too especially coming after something that's really hard to follow up like question the question is kind of its own track too in a way but we, we just talked yeah. for, we just talked about question for like 20 minutes so sounds right but listening to this song i always imagine pinder like marching around on arched legs with a sherlock holmes hat and a magnifying glass while he's singing it <laughs> it's such a strange creation and we have a sample this was sampled in 2006 by the DJ Large Professor on his song, The Break. It's, it's one of those songs like Busy Child by the Crystal Method, where the DJ takes a sample of someone singing a word and makes you think they're singing another word. And in this case, he makes you think that Mike Pinder is singing The Break when he sings The Brink. I do too. All right, let's move on to track three, and the tide rushes in. I've been searching for my dream a hundred times today. I build them up, you knock them down like they were made of clay. Then the tide rushes in and washes my castles away. Then I'm really not so sure which side of the bed I should lay. I should One of the standard tropes of Moody Blues albums during the band's prime period 
was giving the track three slot to Ray Thomas, who had already settled comfortably into his role as the band's uncle, despite the fact (laughs) that he was only 28 when this album came out. Unlike previous songs he had done with the band, which one could more or less divide into the categories goofily whimsical and majestically bombastic, sometimes simultaneously, And the Tide Rushes In is a relationship song. And going forward, his contributions to the band would fall into this category as often as not. This track was inspired by a fight he had with his wife. And for all of its imagery of sandcastles being washed away, or of a blackbird deciding to sit and watch an acorn grow into a tree, it's largely about the uncomfortable stage in a relationship when you start to realize that making this last is going to take some work. And when you realize that life, despite your best efforts, is going to keep throwing some disappointments at you. Musically, this is a very stripped-down number, primarily featuring low-key acoustic guitar, some light Mellotron swells for effect, and an occasional lodge bass part peeking in to say hello. The song also has a very lovely instrumental break, with Hayward playing a low-key mandolin part that really stands out among the extra restraint and space in the mix, whereas a denser mix might have smothered it. Finally, I find it worth noting that Tony Clark loved this song in particular. Quoting Ray Thomas, I remember Tony Clark saying to my wife that she ought to have more rows with me because he considered it such a great song. So I, I've mentioned on this podcast before about how growing up, like my sister and I like to make fun of like dumb Ray Thomas songs because he's written a lot of like really dumb kind of songs. But just every now and then, like Ray Thomas can like smack you in the head and make you realize that when he really wants to, he can write some of the most gorgeous music ever written. Yeah. Which, boy, he does that here. This is probably it's it's hard to compare it to something like Legend of a Mind, but this is a strong candidate for my single favorite Ray Thomas song. Mm -hmm. It's very simple, but it's just absolutely gorgeous. Ray Thomas just sings it beautifully. It's one of those songs that just, there's basically nothing I would change about it. It really says something about how good this album is, or how good Question is, that this just doesn't immediately jump out as, like, obviously the best song on the record. But, yeah, it's, it also doesn't really sound like a lot what people associate with the Moody Blues, because I don't think people associate them with, like, sad relationship songs. But yeah, just, yeah, this is an A-plus song. There's no Ray Thomas songs for nine-year-olds here, which is too bad. And I do (laughs) want to say real quick that I consider Ray Thomas to be the second coolest member of the Moody Blues. And all his songs for nine-year-olds, you'd think, would be a knock against him in that department. But the thing is, Ray Thomas didn't give a <laughs> he did whatever what he was going to do and he did it so well. And in his personal life, I mean, he was good friends with John Lennon and George Harrison. He was drinking buddies with Keith Moon. 
He once spent like $500 buying scalped tickets to his own concert at Madison Square Garden, which he then turned over to a fan who was waiting for tickets. Just an astonishingly cool thing to do. I think he just ruled. I'm a little sad that there's no Ray Thomas songs for nine-year-olds on this album, but when the alternative is this just gorgeous, sad relationship song, I can't complain too much. The emotional honesty of this song and the arrangement both sound to me like a precursor to For My Lady on Seventh Sojourn, although I think this song might be better. And this this pattern is entirely new for Ray Thomas songs. He'd never previously written anything anywhere near this personal, at least not that made it onto an album. And you'd never know this is his first try at it because it's so great. The only nitpick I have is that the line, then I'm really not so sure which side of the bed I should lay, is terrible. It's so bad. (laughs) Man alive, Ray. But he sings it so beautifully, I'm inclined to forgive him. That gorgeous operatic tone that he has is at its best here. However, this utterly gorgeous song is also, unfortunately, a glaring example of one of the reasons I don't rate this album all that highly compared to the others, which is that it's not sequenced nearly as well as most of the albums were in this period. And and I'm not going to try to offer suggestions on what should be changed, because I'm no good at that, but this song kind of sticks out like a sore thumb in between the deeply weird How Is It We Are Here and Don't You Feel Small And the cross-faded transitions, which the band loved and did with all their Core 7 albums, are just awfully clunky at either end of this song. Maybe a longer intro and outro would have helped, but honestly, I think this is just in an awkward spot on the album. I think the crossfades throughout this album are honestly pretty awkward compared to the ones on their other ones. They are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, this I think is the most awkward, but none of them are that great. Well, this is the album of the Moody Blueses from this era that I think most feels like a bunch of songs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it really doesn't feel like a coherent album, but they're still kind of doing the things they did when they were making more coherent albums. Mm -hmm. Well, and I don't think they would have necessarily stuck this in the number three slot if they didn't have an established pattern of this is Ray's slot. I think they had somewhat boxed themselves in to the formula. They're like, well, do we want to tweak it? Like, we're already changing so much about it. Do we want to mess with the the ebb and flow of familiarity that people expect? And I think they decided that that, was a, a, that would have been a step too far. But mm-hmm. yeah, I agree that this is an evolution for for Ray Thomas's songwriting and his voice, too, because like he, he's kind of like uh, left behind the more like childlike voice and adopted kind of like the more like avuncular tone that he would use from this point forward. Uh, but but I but I also love the contrast between like the very serious adult tone of the song and the fact that Ray Thomas is singing about sandcastles. Yep. L- like during <laughs> like during the chorus, I picture him as a little boy on the beach wearing like Oshkosh Bagosh overalls and standing next to a pail <laughs> with a shovel in it. Except he has like Ray Thomas's grown up face, hair and beard, uh, crooning at you oh about gosh. which side of the bed he's sleeping on as his castle gets swept away. <laughs> oh. So now that's the picture that's that it's going to put in your head from now on as well. Ugh. That's the most Ray Thomas image that anybody has ever described. <laughs> yeah. It's a good song, though. And, and you know, given his songwriting history, I mean, I guess in some ways this is a Ray Thomas song for nine-year-olds. Just very sad nine-year-olds, I guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's move on to the next track. Graham Edge's Don't You Feel Small. See the world that's what it's ASMR song. 
Did the Moody Blues invent ASMR? Moody Blues ASMR, 10 hours. found interesting about the structure of a question of balance is that the Moody Blues had five distinct songwriters and side one of this LP featured one song from each of them. Mm-hmm. And that does in fact mean that uh, resident poet Graham Edge got one. Though interestingly, this is one of the few instances in which he wrote a normal song. It's not a poem. Normal-ish. Yeah, normal for Graham Edge. But regardless, considering how few songs he actually wrote, this one's pretty dang good. It's not great. It's I still think it's one of the weaker tracks on the album. The vocals are weird. They're just kind of whispery because Graham Edge can't really sing, unlike the other members of the Moody Blues. But it's still a cool little song. I don't think anybody would call it a highlight of the album, but it's creative. It stands out. It's interesting. I do like the flute solo that shows up in the middle. That gives it a little Mm -hmm. bit of personality. So, hey, you know, good job, Graham. You're not as good a songwriter as everybody else in the band, but you did good here. Well, because Edge rarely performs lead vocals and um, and never by himself, like whenever he writes a song, I think of him as like as if he's this like spiritual presence who temporarily possesses the other members of the Moody Blues. Like, like he's like the first <laughs> evil from Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something or some other ghostly apparition. Yeah, I know that plot is terrible. Amanda, that whole season is terrible. It was really bad. Yeah. Yeah. But either way, that's especially funny in this song where you can like literally hear him whispering lyrics that the rest of the band sings for him like they're conducting like a Graham Edge seance or something like that. And th- that's the only way I can deal with the verses on this song. They, they feel like something that must have seemed like an interesting idea on paper. But the final product on tape is just so silly. But th- those are just the verses and the rest of the song is pretty neat. Like, I, it's a really good groove. Uh, well, as Phil said, this was reportedly the one and only time they had Graham Edge attempt to sing the lead on a Moody Blues song, and it did not go well. I've heard him characterize his own singing voice as sounding like a frog with its toes being stepped on. And he didn't even usually recite his own poetry. The only one he does himself in the classic period is Departure. And it sounds fine, but we all know Pinder did him better. So for this song, ultimately, instead of Edge singing, they had Pinder and Lodge take care of that part. And Edge, you know, was doing the whispering. And I remember on the message board we all used to post on a couple of decades ago, everybody really hated the whispering. But I have to confess, I've always liked it. Which is weird because I'm very sensitive to certain sounds. I loathe ASMR and whispering usually turns my stomach. But I like it here. I think it's an interesting and creative choice. 
and it makes the song at least twice as interesting as it might have been otherwise. And uh, I feel like I should note that this is the first Moody Blues episode we've done since Graham Edge died. And it's that that was sad. That was one that was a little hard to take. Yeah, I mean, he was he was very elderly. He was in poor health. We knew it was coming. But R.I.P. Graham Edge, you made the Moody Blues just so distinctive. They would not have been the same band without you. Thanks for this weird ass whispering, man. <laughs> what do you think of this one, John? So I, I originally hated this one. I might have put this bottom three originally, but I came to like it quite a bit. I mean, the, you know, the scene in the verses with the whispering on top. Yes, that's a thing. It's it's not them at their best in that particular regard. But I really like the 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 slippery instrumental groove under it. And I love, love that midsection. Ray Thomas doesn't usually play his flute like that. Yeah. Like, it sounds much more like Jethro Tull than yes. it does the Moody yeah. Blues. Like there, there, there's a, a sharpness, a precision, an anger to it that just doesn't happen um, in their instrumental breaks usually. And again, that's another instance of this album, you know, doing something that is pretty startling in the grand arc of, of their career. And, you know, I dig, you know, little startling moments that, you know, somehow work that a band, you know, doesn't come back to. So, yeah, like not one of my favorite songs on the album, but compared to how I used to feel about it, I, I really like it now. You know what that flute solo kind of sounds like? It's the same sort of spiky, forceful little trills that you hear at the very end of Eternity Road. like he took that part and just made a whole flute solo out of it and and you're right this is not what you tended to get from him and it, it's really good all right well let's wrap up side one with the tortoise and the hare ninja kick the damn rabbit do something It's time to sit down at the hearth and make an offering to our various household gods as we recap possibly the most famous of Aesop's fables. In The Tortoise and the Hare, a tortoise and a hare decide to have a race. The hare figures that he has this one in the bag, and he zips so far ahead of the tortoise that he gets tired and decides to take a midday siesta before hitting the finish line. Meanwhile, the tortoise has been keeping a steady pace and gently strolls past the sleeping hare and wins the race. 
So the most commonly quoted moral of the story is slow but steady wins the race. But as humorous Lor Schoberg noted on his website Brunching Shuttlecocks, generally speaking, slow but steady loses the race rather humiliatingly. Slow but steady wins the <laughs> pie eating contest. <laughs> the version cataloged by the Library of Congress interprets the moral as the race is not always to the swift. And an ancient Greek source wrote, many people have good natural abilities which are ruined by idleness. On the other hand, sobriety, zeal and perseverance can prevail over indolence. So for John Lodge, the tortoise and the hare is a metaphor for the moody blues amid the changes going on in the music scene in the late 60s and early 70s. As he later said in an interview, quote, everyone else was just racing away. We were just trying to say, if we just keep on going with exactly what we really believe, we're going to last and beat out everyone. And here we are in 1989, end quote. And that's it. There's no irony in his citing of the fable, no subversion, no like attempt to cast a light on the darkness and evils of society. It's just John Lodge saying, be true to yourself, which is so endearingly dorky. This is literally just a song about the tortoise and the hare as a metaphor for the Moody Blues. So musically, at this point in the band's career, Lodge's strategy was to contribute two rhythmically different songs to each album. And this is the more upbeat of his contributions to A Question of Balance. And there's some clever text painting going on with the arrangement. So throughout the song, Lodge plays a series of pulsing bass grooves with one note on the downbeat, another on the offbeat, steady and determined, like the tortoise. Meanwhile, Edge plays a galloping triplet rhythm, I believe, on bongos, on, and he sounds energetic and overexcited, like the hare. So the song is ultimately kind of lightweight, but that's a cool effect right there and a killer performance from the Moody's rhythm section. I think this is one of the better songs on the album. Really? I actually, I like this song okay, but at least from, you know, the classic Moody's era, I would probably put this possibly at the bottom of the pile of John Lodge songs. Huh. Oh, wow. Which doesn't mean I don't like it. I don't think the band really cranked out any particularly bad material during that whole era. But this song has always just been so slight. And again, because of the way the songwriting shakes out on this album, Lodge doesn't get much material here, which means the fact that one of his contributions being the tortoise and the hare makes this probably one of the weakest albums with regards to John Lodge in the entire Moody Blues catalog, in my opinion. I think it's kind of flimsy in terms of songwriting, but I mentioned earlier that some of the songs like really rose in my esteem in getting ready for the, this episode and listening closely to this one. I, I, I really like started to dig the band interplay that was going on on this one. Yep. I do like oh, the yeah. solo. I think it's very clever. What do you think, John? This is another one I initially hated. <laughs> and, you know, now I'd, I'd probably put it in the bottom third of the album if I had to to rank that. But I, I still like it quite a bit. Like, even though, like, on a certain level, I want a little more meat uh, for my lyrics from the band. Like, the, the groove, the, 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 the rhythm section, it's it's so interesting. It's It's so, in many ways, uncharacteristic of what they would do typically. And... You know they're they're dipping their toe into this area that they don't necessarily um, always like to occupy, and they're doing just fine. And again, that that guitar solo in the middle—it's really sharp and piercing. It really uh, ups 
you know, seems to uh, up the intensity and the pathos and the the stakes of this very ridiculous lightweight song. I I like the way that uh, you know that Hayward is is really throwing him, himself into this uh, to do the very best they can with it. So yeah, I I don't think it's it's an especially remarkable song, and yet I enjoy it every time I hear it. I find both of the Lodge songs on this album kind of confusing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I like this one the better of the two. Uh, the thing about this is, instrumentally, this track is smoking. I mean, everything you guys said about the rhythm section is dead on. It is, I can't think of a hotter groove that they ever laid down. But the thing is, the vocal part, the melody and their performance just doesn't live up to it. There's, it's too there's, much Lodge. Yeah, it, it's a big gap. Like, I wonder... I wonder if Mike Pinder could have come up with something better for the, for the vocal part. I bet you he could have, because he did that for Lodge's songs, you know, a yep. couple of times in the past. And this seems like it could have been an A-plus Lodge-Pinder collaboration. But mm-hmm. as it is, it's an incredible instrumental arrangement with a kind of lukewarm vocal take. And it, it, that disconnect bugs me. Overall, I do really like the song, but it it could have been a lot better. With that, we are done with side A of A Question of Balance. So let's flip over our virtual LPs and get to side B with It's Up to You. Hayward had a tendency to be the member of the Moody Blues most likely to write vaguely country-tinged songs. Never full-on country, but music with some country elements, such as You and Me from Seventh Sojourn or It's Cold Outside of Your Heart from The Present, which is as close as they ever came to country. It's Up to You is probably the first instance of him doing this. It's not exactly what I would call a country song, because I can't imagine the Moody Blues just really doing country, but it's got some great sounding slide guitar, and the whole vibe of the piece feels country influenced to me. It's a relatively minor song, but the Moody Blues were just great at taking relatively minor tracks and just making them sound fantastic. This one has an awesome lead guitar line in between the verses, some of my favorite sounding John Lodge bass, really great vocal harmonies, and a really unforgettable tonal shift into the chorus that is just wonderful. I think the band would revisit this same basic territory to slightly better effect on Seventh Sojourn's You and Me, but this is still a first great stab at it. I've always liked this one. 
Uh, but more than that, you know, I, I don't necessarily think about this as falling in the top tier of Hayward's contributions until I'm actually listening to it. I think I have more fun when listening to this song than I do to any other Hayward song. Hmm. Like whenever I put it on, and, and it's actually pretty frequently, I come across this song uh, or feel like in the mood to to listen to it pretty frequently, and I always just enjoy the hell out of it. I love the interplay. I love uh, the the build into into out of the if they knew that we have got nothing to lose uh, into the final break. Like there there's a there's an intensity to it, and they they just they find a way to be able to to stretch it out just a little bit longer. It's so deeply satisfied every time I listen to it. So yeah, I, I'm a big fan of this one. I, I've always enjoyed it a lot. It also really strikes me that, you know, when we did the bluegrass episode, the Moody bluegrass episode, um, you know, this was an obvious candidate uh, for, to me for us to talk about partially because it was one of the, the songs that like, oh, you don't actually have to do much to this to make it work. And it sounds great in the original. It sounds great uh, in the bluegrass version. I feel like it would sound great in a lot of different approaches. So, yeah, I, I think this is a, a pretty fantastic song. How do you think, Amanda? I love it. Uh, this is definitely a really fun song. And one of the interesting things about this more scaled back sound is that you can hear the rhythm section a lot better than usual just because there's less stuff piled on top of it. And the drum and bass on this are, again, just fantastic, which they usually were, but you can just hear them better. They're really front and center on this song, which is a great choice. Now, as far as their country tendencies, Phil, I would disagree with you slightly. It's Cold Outside of Your Heart is absolutely a country song, but so is Slings and Arrows on The Other Side <laughs> of Life. That is straight up country, just with the wrong inter- no instruments. No chance for a second chance when the arrows start to fly. <laughs> you don't have to put that in. I just had to Oh, it's going to go in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And yeah, this John's right. This was an obvious choice to cover for the Moody Bluegrass album. Jan Harvey did a wonderful version of it. It's one of the best uh, bluegrass renditions of any of those songs. And like the guitar at the beginning, they just they transpose that to a fiddle and it doesn't even sound that different. This one mostly just makes me appreciate Justin Hayward. Like he feels like such a grounding influence on the Moody Blues in general. Like there's, there, there's no poetry here, no mysticism, no <laughs> ASMR, no like 
weird, horny, <laughs> lusting after Mother Earth. It's just, I don't know, this is just a down-to-earth folk rock song, kind of in the vein of the birds or something. And I, I, I do appreciate that the band is such a weird mishmash of stuff. It's one of the things that appeals to me about them and makes them so hard to explain to other people, no matter how much we try to on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> but I'm also glad that Hayward was relatively such a normie in terms of songwriting because it, it keeps their albums from like completely drifting off into space. And uh, th- this song is yeah. a good example of that kind of tendency. Like I, I never really noticed it before, but it's it's such a just warm, lovely song to have here in the middle. It's uh, I, it, it had completely passed me by before. Though I, I do have a question, though, for the more seasoned fans here, though, because I because I, I'm not really familiar with the band's dynamic. Like, w- was this ever a point of contention between Hayward and the band? Like, did, did he collaborate with the rest of them on the more experimental weirdo stuff? My understanding is they got along OK. I don't think there was ever too much tension beyond what you would expect from a normal band. I know that Hayward, for instance, really enjoyed uh, playing on Ray Thomas's songs because yeah. it gave it always gave him a launch point to use different guitar styles than he normally do and he he had a lot of fun doing those. A lot of the arranging was done by Hayward and Pinder jointly. Okay. So I think yeah, they they were the two of them together were responsible for a lot of the overall sound. Okay, so he, so he wasn't just like a frustrated top 40 songwriter trapped with a bunch of weirdos, like he was part of the band's oh, no. arranging and an active no. part of their sound. He was all in. Yeah, and that's, like we've said this before, the Moody Blues were a band where all five of them needed each other. And the band needed all five of them, of those specific people with their specific sensibilities. All right. Well, let's move on to the next track, Minstrel Song. If your reaction to Minstrel Song is, this is ridiculous hippie nonsense, well, I'm hardly going to say anything here that challenges your assumptions. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, This song is John Lodge's Come On People Now, Smile On Your Brother, Flower Power Anthem, (laughs) and he was inspired to write the song by John Lennon's pleas for peace and love in the world. It's about as stereotypical late 60s as the Moody Blues ever got, and this is a band that wrote a song called Ohm. (laughs) So there's actually a lot going on with the arrangement and production that I like, especially Edge's drum groove this is another good rhythm section song and pinder and hayward playing acoustic guitar at the same time which produces a really rich ringing sound and i also like when the electric guitars sort of muscle their way into the arrangement like it it, this feels like a very early morning sort of song to me and that bit sounds like kind of like a ray of sunlight peeking over the horizon or something like that 
So as a whole, I don't dislike this song, but it's definitely like cornball AF. It's it's songs like this that make me temporarily hear the Moody Blues the way the rest of the world seems to hear them. Yeah, this is definitely what the Moody yeah. Blues sound like to people who don't like the Moody Blues. I still don't know whether I actually like this song or not. It's another case where I think the rhythm track is really good, but everything else doesn't work. I mean, that it's catchy. That drum groove sure draws you in, but it is just so hokey, especially that little descending piano thing going into the chorus. I mean, if I really examine my soul, I'm pretty sure I like it, but I'm very embarrassed about liking it. And this is not a song that I would want to be caught listening to by other people. Oh, yeah, this is for sure my least favorite song on this album. Mm hmm. Actually, yeah, this is what I should have said instead of how is it we are here if I had thought about it just slightly more. Right. Ray Thomas didn't provide any material for you to make fun of him with on this album. So he kicked it over to John Lodge (laughs) because I will never not laugh at listen to the one who sings of love. Follow our friend, our wandering friend. That was a good performance, Phil. It was. Thank you. Yeah, as I do really like the backing vocals. I'll say that. They sound really good. But yeah, otherwise, but like, no. This is a song that I kind of like in spite of myself, but this is just my moody blues fandom taking over because I I do enjoy this song and I just absolutely cannot defend it. So initially this was easily my least favorite moody blues song. Mm. Like by far. Like even kind of for the others. But nowadays I like it fine. Uh, at, at you, know, what it sounds like to me, it sounds like a parade. Yeah, like it sounds like a really, really uh hokey up with people like parade that you'd see at, like at a Memorial Day parade or something. And and it to me, it feels like more and more uh people are just slowly joining the parade and mass as it as it walks down the street. And I like the way that, you know, there's this accumulation of of joy and, and buoyancy. I really like that. Let those buddies in your heart bit from Hayward. Like, even though it's so, so cornball, it's so cheesy, but it kind of works for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I would also note, uh, this is actually one of the songs that got performed at the Isle of Wight Festival. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it, it actually kind of works there. It, it It's. It's very, very laid back. It gives kind of a breather uh, to the material and it's as as a whole. And I mean, it, it still feels kind of lightweight and, and cornball. It feels like it would work better in front of a crowd. I think yeah. it would like it just, uh, you know, 600,000 people who are, are stoned and happy. I was going to say they were all super high. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, it, it's fine now. Like I, I again, I used to despise it, and and part of it was because it's like I wouldn't be caught dead listening to this, and mm-hmm. eventually I was just like, who cares? One thing that kind of saves it is how in this period the Moody Blues always went all in. Yep. On everything, for and better that, and for worse. Yes, and that 
kind of went a long way towards saving songs that at their heart weren't really anything much. Like this, this song is ridiculous. And yet Hayward at the end is still all, listen to the one, listen to the one, you know. It, I do love that part. I, I like that part a lot. And you're kind of like, why are you putting in all this effort on this incredibly stupid song? But I'm really glad he did. All right. Up next, dawning is the day. is a lot weirder than it seems at first glance. It is absolutely all over the place for one thing. It's constantly up and down. It doesn't maintain the same tone for more than one or two lines at a time. And yet it doesn't sound clumsy at all. It's clearly planned out very carefully and executed extremely well. And the drumming really helps a lot with that. Graham Edge was on point with this song and he keeps the whole thing flowing really, really well. There are some very interesting instrumental choices in here. Uh, maybe the most noticeable is those super fast guitar runs we just heard, which some people have speculated are actually played on a mandolin. But what actually happened is they sped up the tape. <laughs> I think there is still some mandolin in the song as well, but in, in the, those are guitars just played at the tape was played at double speed. And again, the drumming is really wonderful. There's little fills in exactly the right spots. It really carries all the weird little changes in the song. However, the two most interesting details happen in the bridge.
The first interesting detail is that's the only spot in the whole song where you hear any Mellotron, and it's barely even there. I had to listen very carefully several times before I heard it at all. It's it's like the background radiation. And I was trying so hard to find it because I thought there can't possibly be a Moody Blues song with no Mellotron on it. And there is some. It's just very light. And I'm pretty sure that's the Moog again during that super low growly part. The Mellotron doesn't become obvious until the very end of the bridge going back into the verse. And like I said, that's just bizarre for a Moody Blues song. The other notable bit is how Ray Thomas doubles Justin Hayward's vocal for just a couple of measures before the flute solo takes over completely. It's like a preview of how the guitar solo takes over from the vocal in New Horizons a couple of albums later. This is a really lovely song, and it's quite unusual for them. I can't think of any others that sound really like this. And, you know, who else really enjoyed it was the United States Air Force. They used it in a recruitment ad in 1973, and I could not find this commercial anywhere, but I did read descriptions of it. And just picture hearing the lines, so rise, let us see you, over images of fighter jets breaking through the clouds. (laughs) The band got wind of it later that year and put a stop to it. And Mike Pinder in particular was quite upset about that since he'd served in the British Army himself and he didn't like this very positive song being used to pull in new military recruits. And Pinder was very complimentary about the song overall. In fact, he said it was one of his all-time favorite Hayward songs. And I don't totally agree with him, but I don't disagree either. This song is wonderful. That's funny that the Air Force could like hear an album with the lyrics about like, you know, a thousand million questions about hate and death and war and things yeah. like that. <laughs> Clearly these guys love yeah. the military and want to recruit people. I'm so curious how that came about, but I don't know if anybody knows. What do you think, Rich? Well, I agree with what Amanda said about like how like the, the, the song is very like up and down and doesn't really like maintain the same tone. Uh, for very long and like uh, Justin Hayward songs often have that moment where the melody and arrangement sort of crest like the uh, like the you will love me tonight and never comes the day or like when his vocal soars before the chorus and Tuesday afternoon yeah. and like so Dunning is the day to me feels like a whole series of those moments like strung together which makes the song feel very hesitant. Like it keeps building up momentum and then sputtering out. And that's not a diss hmm. on it necessarily. It's still a very beautiful song. There's kind of like a, a feeling of like, you know, waves going back and forth uh, very gently. But like usually Hayward songs feel like he's charting a very broad path for the listener. Whereas like here it feels kind of like you're pulling the string on his back. And each time he plays a new gorgeous melody for you. Uh, again, not yeah. not a bad thing. Have any of you had that like mo- had that kind of like moment in the middle of the night where you're like half awake and you're still kind of dreaming and you're like fixating on one thing for two hours or so before you go back to sleep? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, that happened to me a couple of days ago, except that I, w- I had dawning is the day stuck in my head. <laughs> and, <laughs> and usually those like those half dreams are kind of nightmarish. But in this case, it was it was very pleasant. Like the whole time I was thinking, what a nice song. So. It was a good song to have stuck in my head at that moment, and it actually made me kind of like it more. Well, that could have backfired, so I'm glad it went well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm glad it wasn't the next song, but we'll get to that. Mm. What do you think of this one, John? I really like it, but I kind of feel like it's, it's a situation where I love the bridge 
and the midsection. And I kind of like the rest. And so I feel like my love of that middle um, kind of artificially inflates my feeling of the rest. Because I, I think I agree with Rich that it, it feels really disjointed. And yet I, I enjoy the hell out of it every time. Like I, I feel like even absent question, Hayward is the winner of this album. Which, oh, yeah. And, you know, with question oh, on yeah. top of it, he makes him just an overwhelming victor uh, for the album. But yeah, it's I think it's a really good song. Um, it's I, I would put it below. It's up to you, but it's still really good. Yeah. And, and you guys are right about it being disjointed. It's just I, I like that about it. I think that's deliberate and they executed it well. Hey, I like disjointed mm-hmm. albums. So who am I to complain? Yeah. Yeah, and the Moody Blues are a, are a very disjointed band. This isn't like a new thing for them. Yeah. This has long been a song that I have loved a lot. Like, I actually agree with Mike Pinder. I think this is one of Justin Hayward's very best songs. Much like, you know, uh, what was it? And the Tide Rushes In. I think Dawning is the Day would be pretty much the best song on any album that didn't have question on it. But... I kind of agree with you about how disjointed it is, but just something about this arrangement and Justin Hayward's vocals, I just find this song indescribably gorgeous. Like, I've played this song like 10 times in a row before, and I just never get tired Mm. of it. It's just such a pretty song. It is insane that it was used in a military recruitment ad, though. (laughs) What in the hell? It's so funny. Wake up in the morning to yourself and leave this crazy life behind you by joining the United States Air Force. All right, let's go from this uh, incredibly upbeat, friendly song to the next song on this album, Melancholy Man. Yes, let's. My favorite Mega Man boss. what I am All the world surrounds me and my feet are on the ground I'm a very lonely man Doing what I can All the world astounds me and I think I understand that we're going to keep growing One of the least surprising things I've ever read concerning the Moody Blues is that Melancholy Man was a number one single in France. (laughs) During the initial recording process, Derek Varnals, the recording engineer, commented to Tony Clark that even on acoustic guitar, this resembled something from the soundtrack to a French film. And he asked for, and was granted permission, to make the final version sound like something from a French film. The song is built around acoustic guitars played by Hayward and Pinder, with each of these doubled to bring the total of acoustic guitars in the mix to four. While Pinder plays some Moog in addition to Mellotron to flush it out. And generally speaking, the song is made to feel dark and brittle and a little angry. In the episode we collectively did on Seventh Sojourn, I ended up as the person who vouched for the Pinder Dirge when you're a free man over the objections of my <laughs> colleagues. 
Sturge is right. And thus, it shouldn't surprise you that I like Melancholy Man a lot, even though I initially numbered it among the many tracks here that I disliked. The shift from Dawning as the Day to this one could understandably give somebody severe whiplash. But, as has been well established on this podcast, I am a fan of extreme shifts in style and tone between successive tracks. So if anything, I find this a point in its favor. Lyrically, it's easy to perceive this as a self-pitying mope anthem, but there's an interview quote from Pinder in 1996 that I think is instructive in this regard. Quote, The single most incorrect interpretation of Melancholy Man has been that maybe it was a song about me being melancholy. I use that as a way of saying that there are different levels of melancholy, and that this was a melancholy for the whole world, because of the impending breakdown of the structure and all things we have seen happen since the song came out. What we're seeing now is just more results of what was being done then, and what continues to be done by the industrial giants and governments of the world, and the greedy little cigar-smoking guys, like the one depicted on the album cover. The song has three main parts that I consider worth highlighting. After the initial portion clipped already, which is essentially the chorus, we finally come to what one could reasonably call a verse. And while it maintains the bleak atmosphere of before, it does so in a way that doesn't strike me as redundant, even if I could see somebody protesting the length. When all the stars are falling down into the sea, on the ground and angry voices carry on the wind A beam of light will fill your head and you'll remember what's been said by all the good men this world's ever known Heard today, a lot of these lyrics read like sad scribblings of somebody in high school. But consider that this was written in 1970, during the height of the Cold War. I can't help but wonder, for instance, if the stars falling down into the sea and on the ground represent nuclear weapons. Hmm. In any case, the third section worth clipping is the lawn instrumental break, which is more of the same relative to the song, but taps into a truly dark place that the Moody's never really ventured before or after. What this actually reminds me of most is analogous passages from Welcome to the Machine from five years later. And while I'm not suggesting that Pink Floyd had this album or song in mind as they worked on Wish You Were Here, I am suggesting that it's curious that so many people rightly praise Pink Floyd for the desolate soundscapes they created, but don't give this track the same attention.
I've always liked Melancholy Man a lot, despite the fact that it has so much working against it. <laughs> I mean, first of all, it is so oppressively over-the-top gloomy that it's almost comical. There's a point where you push so far in that direction and you just kind of have to laugh at it. And it also begins with, I'm a melancholy man. That's a what I am. And that's as funny as anything could possibly be. <laughs> but that said, I still think it's a very good song. I think the atmosphere works. You just have to kind of turn off the part of your brain that is inclined to laugh at stuff that's this over-the-top dour and just take the song on its own terms. And on those terms, I think the song's very effective. I really like the uh, vocal harmonies throughout it. I think the keyboard sounds they get here. I'm not sure entirely what keyboards they're using. It doesn't sound like it's a Mellotron the whole time. There's a lot of Moog in here. Lots. Yeah, it's mostly Moog. But I just really like, you know, what they do here. It's so atypical for the band. And I guess the band would kind of try to go in this direction a few, a couple more times later, like when you're a free man, which I don't like very much, or my song from every good boy deserves favor, which I also don't like very much. Yeah. But I think Mm -hmm. this is, uh, yeah, probably the peak of Mike Pinder exploring this particular direction. Well, I still don't like when you're a free man, but I like melancholy man a lot. I feel like a question of balance was Pinder at his Pinderist. He's very dour and gloomy and pessimistic, but still interesting. That's where When You're a Free Man and my song fall down. They're they're very dour and gloomy, but also boring. This is a super interesting song. And I think I'm a melancholy man. That's what I am is one of the worst opening lines I've ever heard. <laughs> but the song quickly improves from there. And I love the when all the stars are falling down part. That melody is wonderful. And the backing vocals for being so simple get surprisingly wild with all the falsettos and whatnot. And then, you know, you have that instrumental section with the incredibly cool sounding Moog and that howling wind. It's so desolate and forbidding. And I especially like the last 90 seconds or so of the song where the backup choir is singing when all the stars are falling down while Pinder does the I'm a melancholy man part. And then they do it again, only Pinder, rather than singing, he just like shouts the verse lyrics in little chunks. And eventually he's just like improvising and vamping over those backing vocals. kind of thing plenty in rock and pop music but i can't think of any other moody blues song that does it and that's another of the things that makes this album really unusual and again in this case totally unique at least you know in the moody blues catalog now uh speaking of france 
I did find a really nifty cover of this by French composer Paul Moriat, the same guy who did the orchestral version of Love is Blue that was a hit in the U.S. in the late 60s. It is super groovy, and I like it a whole lot. didn't expect that no that's a surprise that's the eurovision melancholy man (laughs) what do you say rich are you a melancholy man or not i'm not yeah i foreshadowed this back in our seventh sojourn episode when we were talking about when you're a free man but yeah this song is not my jam and by the way like five people wrote in to tell us how wrong we were about when you're a free man so fine we've heard from the whole when you're a free man fan club no they were writing in to tell me how right i was Oh, okay. Sorry, corrected. But yeah, it's not that the song is sad music. There's there's, there's a whole bunch of sad music out there that I love. Uh, I have an episode on The Cure on my long list for the show, and that's some vintage sad music right there. It, it's more that like when Mike Pinder writes sad music, it, it's like it's music sung by a sad ghost who's going to sing a spooky song about sadness, and it's going to be six minutes long. Yeah, the song is just unbearable to me. I'm sorry. But I did like that Paul Moriart <laughs> cover that uh, Amanda played. And that there's another cover version I like by the Turkish pop singer Gokhan Abur. And I probably got that name wrong. I'm sorry. But here it is. Yeah. Yıllar yılı bu hep böyle Düşman gibi sevgiyle Yalnız kaldım yalnız kendimle yeah, I think the key is, uh, like John was saying, to make it sound like a song from a sad European film. That's all it needs to get me to like it. Yeah, that Turkish cover is really cool. Yeah, I like it. It also brings to mind like that cover of uh, So Deep Within You by the Four Tops that we played, like not stylistically. Mm -hmm. I just mean that like oftentimes, like for me, Mike Pinder's songs are just a different singer and arrangement away from being a great song. But this version, I'm I'm glad you three like it, but no thanks. (laughs) I did think it was really interesting um, how that Turkish cover seems to have just put lyrics on top of that Paul Moriat arrangement because the the Moriat one came out a couple years prior. All right. Well, we started this album with Question, and now we conclude it with The Balance. I see what they did there. Uh, uh. After he had journeyed and his feet were sore and he was tired, he came upon an orange grove and he rested. And he lay in the cool, and while he rested, he took to himself an orange and tasted it. And it was good. And he felt the earth to his spine, and he asked. And he saw the tree above him, and the stars, and the veins in the leaf, and the light, 
and the balance. And he saw magnificent perfection, whereon he thought of himself in balance, and he knew he was. If you are a new listener to the Moody Blues, now is the time to introduce you to one of the band's trademarks during its prime period. Each of the albums, starting from Days of Future Past and extending through A Question of Balance, featured one or two Graham Edge poems, typically recited by Mike Pinder, set to music typically performed by the band. In albums previous to this one, a poem would feature in the opening track. But in this case, the band rightly recognized that starting the album with question and ending with a poem would provide, well, balance that would serve the album well. The balance, as with most of the band's poem-based tracks, requires buy-in to the whole Moody Blues thing. Yep. And you'll either enjoy it or you won't. Yeah. Edge's words written by a staunch atheist who had neither the strong Christian leanings of Lodge or the mystic tendencies of Pinder, certainly have their more ridiculous aspects. In particular, how Edge gussies up everything in King James Bible language, even when describing a figure eating an orange. And I could see how somebody could nope out of this track immediately upon hearing it for the first time. And yet... I adore this. Thomas and Pinder, who co-wrote the music for this, even though Pinder is uncredited, make these words come alive for me in a way somewhat analogous to how a skilled opera composer can make the most paltry libretto spring to life. The message of this track might ultimately be nothing more than a more bombastic reading of and in the end the love you take is equal to the love you make. <laughs> but everybody's performance including Pinder's great reading, absolutely sells this. And in particular, I am completely in love with the celebratory magic the band creates after Pinder solemnly intones, and then he was answered. There, the... He's all in. Love it. I guess I would slightly disagree with the idea that you have to buy in entirely to the whole Moody Blues thing to like their poems, because at their very best, 
they could write stuff that's actually kind of cool sounding. Like sure. I still stand by my belief that mm-hmm. higher and higher from to our children's children's children is legitimately cool. I agree. Yeah, it absolutely is. This is not. <laughs> this this is not cool by anybody's standard of cool. This is the Moody Blues at their most over the top dorky. That said, I enjoy it anyway. And again, that's probably because I have bought in on the whole Moody Blues thing. And like John said, like the actual music at the end of it is just gorgeous and it makes just a great coda for the album. It's just, you know, mm-hmm. standard Graham Edge poetry warnings apply here. What do you think, Rich? If I wanted a song about tasting an orange, I'd have taken the orange eating class. <laughs> I was thinking that. Just eat the damn oranges. No, I like this one. Uh, my, my instinct is to make fun of this song, but the but the poetry songs, yeah, are they, I mean, uh, they're part of what make the Moody Blues what they are. And, you know, this is our fourth Moody Blues episode, fifth if you count the one on our bonus feed, sixth, really. Uh, so clearly yeah. it is not a deal breaker for any of us that the band does this kind of thing so often. We, yeah, we are all in. And I was reading the archives of the Higher and Higher fanzine, uh, which Amanda provided for me. Thank you, Amanda. You're welcome. And apparently Edge was super proud of this song. And like even as a self-avowed atheist, like John said, it filled him with like this glee, like this sort of sense of spiritual fulfillment. He loved this. And yeah, that, that's really endearing to me. Like it's another totally cornball song, but it's such a sincere piece of art. Yeah. Right. What do you think, Amanda? Well, I think, OK, first of all, the list of cool people in the Moody Blues Goes Mike Pinder, then Ray Thomas, and then it ends. There's nobody else on that list. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the, not the only reason, but a major reason why the poetry worked at all was that they had the coolest dude in the band reading it. He sells this so well. And even with Mike Pinder giving this his all, which was considerable, I like if this were something like Departure, where there wasn't really any music with it at all, I, I wouldn't like this. I would think it was completely stupid. But yeah, it's the the sung parts. Absolutely save it. It's wonderful. Yep. And I read that I think this was also in that issue of Higher and Higher. This instrumental part was actually originally intended for Tortoise and the Hare. Oh, really? But they realized it absolutely was not working for that song. And so they thought, I wonder if we could put this under the poem. And then it, it it worked beautifully there. So yeah, I'm glad they did that. And I also think it's significant that on the album Strange Times, the poem on that, Nothing Changes, is extremely similar yep. to this. It's Edge doing his own reading because Pinder was long gone from the band by that point. And then there's a really beautiful sung part. And so... Am I remembering right? Unless we count Procession, this was the last poem on a Moody Blues album until Strange Times, wasn't it? Oh, there was a, what's it? Reflective Smile on Long Distance Voyager and I Am on the Present. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of. I don't know if I would really consider those like poetry readings in the classic style, but that's certainly up for debate and interpretation but i i think it's probably well it's definitely significant that for nothing changes they went back to the same structures on the balance because they i mean it's such a throwback and i like that it's a throwback to something really specific and they even like that song part they sing life is still a simple game mm-hmm. it's really it's you know it's really wonderful and it's referencing a few other really wonderful things no. 
just really has no right to work at all, but somehow it does. All right. That concludes our discussion of A Question of Balance. So I guess let's go around the horn and do our final concluding thoughts. Amanda, what are your thoughts on the album as a whole? I find this album very difficult to reconcile with itself. As we, as I've detailed throughout the episode, I like all the individual songs to varying degrees, but I think overall this stripped back production style just didn't really suit them. My favorite album of all time is To Our Children's Children's Children, so clearly my preferred style of Moody Blues production is as much as possible. And I understand and respect this decision to dial it back. I just find that A Question of Balance doesn't flow nearly as well as most of their other albums, and I think that's because of the relative minimalism of the production. And they kept that up through the next couple albums. And the next one in line, Every Good Boy Deserves Favor, is firmly in last place for me. And I feel like they didn't really get the hang of working within these boundaries until until Seventh Sojourn. And by then it was too late. They were all sick of the whole shebang anyway and packed it in. So even though I like all the songs on A Question of Balance, it's still toward the bottom of my list of favorites just because it doesn't quite hang together as well as it should. And one of the reasons I love the Moody Blues so much is because their albums hang together so well as a whole piece of art rather than just a collection of songs. All right. What do you think, John? So it's funny. I agree with pretty much everything Amanda said, and yet I like it significantly more than she does. Uh, You know, I, I, I love To Our Children's Children's Children about as much as Amanda does. Um, and I would agree that this is a significant step down from that because the 60s version of the Moody Blues is better um, than the 70s version. I, I don't think there's any question about that just in totality. And yet, as messy as this album is, or perhaps in a certain sense because of how messy it is, um, one, I rate this very high. I would rank this number three overall wow and honest and what's i found over the years is that when i'm in the mood just to listen to a random moody blues album i just get the hankering for it or i'm had to go on a a drive in the car and i get a a desire to listen to moody blues i'm as often as not going to put this one on i think Hmm. partially it's because if i'm just in a casual listening mode um the, the the fact that you have all these songs that are actually that are acting at odds against each other for me ends up somewhat benefiting it. If I if I want to sit down and do like a really really serious listen to something, um, I might go uh, towards something that has more of the thematic unity. But as an interesting uh, collection of ideas and songs, you know, crashing into each other, working in conjunction with each other, some of the time, sometimes working very much at odds with each other other parts of the time um to me it's it's a very very interesting listening experience um and again i i i could understand you know any ordering of the first seven uh albums to me is a plausible one as long as every good boy deserves favor is in the bottom half <laughs> um so uh, if, if somebody wants to slot this lower fine uh but for me for somebody who likes mess 
I would strongly recommend this one. Fair enough. So for me, uh, when I'm thinking about my favorite Moody Blues albums, I kind of put the first four in one category and then the next three in another category. Mm. I love the first four. I mean, I really think those really do have a really consistent, cool sound that really doesn't sound like anything else. Mm hmm. The last three Moody Blues albums before their initial hiatus have always felt a little bit weaker to me, and I'm less likely to reach for them. That said, they were still writing great songs at just an amazing clip at this point, and the band was still working together really well. And despite the fact that these albums, including A Question of Balance, kind of lack the thematic unity of their early stuff, the band was still just so good that I have no qualms whatsoever about recommending a question of balance to really anybody who likes the sound of the Moody Blues at all. And uh, how about you, Rich? Well, I don't really have any specific thoughts on a question of balance because the, the album is very much the sum of its parts, and I have already talked about all 10 of its parts. Uh, so I'll just say more broadly that counting that Phil and Amanda covered three of their 80s albums in one episode on our bonus feed, we have seven Moody Blues albums left to go, nine if you count the Magnificent Moody's and their Christmas album December, and I think we can do it. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we are all in on this band. Yeah, that one bonus episode is really fun, by the way, because that's the one where me and Phil said, oh, we can just talk about those albums at a broader level. We don't need to discuss every song. And then we went ahead and discussed every song. Yeah. Except for Keys of the Kingdom. There's not a lot to discuss. Yeah, we, we did. Well, we hadn't actually planned on talking about that one at all. Yeah. It was just like, hey, this one sucks, too. Let's throw it in. But yeah, the, the, the Moody Blues will return. And roughly equal sized parts of our audience are going, yay and no at this point, I think. <laughs> Which we love. Love, by the way, we want to hear it. Send it in. Yeah, send it in. Discordpod at gmail.com. All right. Well, this is where we would normally do a further listening section, but we've talked about the Moody Blues so much. I think we've already said all that needs to be said, unless any of y'all have anything specific you'd like to recommend about this album. I do. Um, I would like to recommend uh, a recording that came out of their performance at the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival. You can hear uh, four of the songs from here. Uh, in live performance, you get Question, uh, Taurus and the Hare, Minstrel Song, and Melancholy Man. Um, it's interesting to hear how they integrated this material into their set overall. Um, it all fits onto a single disc, so it is price conscious. <laughs> it, it shows that the band, you know, in a certain sense, was not a spectacular live act by any means, but they did their best to take uh, really, really sophisticated, really, really layered material and figure out how to make it work in a live context using tools that were not as good as the ones. They do a really, really good job of MacGyvering together an interesting live show. So I would really recommend that one. I've still never heard that. I really should.
wraps up another episode of Discord and Rhyme. On our next episode, we will be venturing into the twisted world of Mike Patton, as Dan will be talking about California by Mr. Bungle. I'm looking forward to that. One. I love that album. This one's going to be epic. Thank you for listening to Discord and Rhyme. You can buy A Question of Balance and other albums by the Moody Blues at your local record store or from moodybluestoday.com along with tickets to the 2023 On the Blue Cruise featuring Justin Hayward. You can also buy or stream it at the usual places such as Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and Amazon. Visit our website, discordpod.com, for show notes and a Spotify playlist featuring this album and every song we clipped in this episode. You can follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at DiscordPod for news and updates. Visit John's Music Review Archive at johnmcfarrenmusicreviews.org. Fair warning, he rates albums in hexadecimal. A Question of Balance gets a C, which means very good slash great. Editing is by Rich Bunnell, and special thanks to Mike DeFabio for production, our theme song, and original music. See you next album, and keep as cool as you can. There you go, man. Yeah. And it was good.